Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. KYW Original Podcasts. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at donors1.org. This week, we take a look at why Americans are struggling to lock it down in the fight against COVID-19. I think some people just don't want to be told what to do. Some blame it on the isms. Folks are targeting one group and holding them responsible. This rugged individualism that is so part of our kind of political and cultural DNA. The hate, the myth, and the culture make it harder for the U.S. to battle the coronavirus. Then... They got married despite the global pandemic. I said, no, now is the time, so let's just get married. And he said, okay, let's do it. Why a Philadelphia bride refused to let the crisis block their big day. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you rate and review this podcast? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Please give us feedback. I read every single one of them and I really appreciate you. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Now let's get to it. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the COVID-19 crisis. In recent days, city and state governments have locked down areas of the country, hoping to get a handle on the spread of the coronavirus. But efforts to get Americans to social distance and to shelter in place have been mediocre at best, in large part because individuals refuse to comply. Access to testing is uneven and myths about the virus and attacks against Asians are all on the rise. But why? We dig into the isms of America that make fighting COVID-19 that much harder. me on the phone is Dr. Charles Gallagher. He's chair of the Sociology and Criminal Justice Department at LaSalle University. We also have Dr. Jennifer Caudill, a family physician who's an associate professor at Rowan University. And finally, we have John Chen, executive director of the Philadelphia Chinatown Development Corporation. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so Dr. Gallagher, I want to start with you because we have a lot of isms at work here and we've seen them uh, making headlines and bubbling to the surface. Yeah, we uh, certainly have uh, racism playing out and classism playing out. Obviously, they are interrelated. Starting from the racism side, we have a president who insists on calling this virus the Chinese virus. Someone in his staff called it the, uh, the Kung Flu. And, you know, what this president has done is it's a form of, I think, trickle-down racism. Um, He has put targets on the backs of Asian Americans in the United States, and and it's demonstrated by basically the ticking up of hate crimes directed towards Asian Americans. So 
Um, and we also have, have, have Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who he's insisting that it be called the Wuhan virus. And although WHO says no, we do not want diseased diseases with names of, of places or people because the disease names matter. You know, we're in a situation now where if you're Asian American in the United States, you've been, as they, we call it in sociology, it's a form of racial lumping. So now someone who's Vietnamese or Korean or Filipino, they're now targeted because in the minds of some people, well, they're all the same thing. And so we have a really... I think an ugly cascade effect for Asians and Asian Americans in the United States. And John, I know that the Philadelphia Chinatown Development Corporation has been posting things, trying to get people to report. What have you been seeing in, in this region? We've heard of incidents of um, these isms from the less threatening verbal harassment to just a, a recent physical assault that took place about a week and a half ago right here in Chinatown. A, a young Chinese male was attacked by two men. So the serious politics that are at the federal level have trickled down to the average working person and Chinese people and Asians in general feel that they have targets on their backs. What has the organization been doing to kind of quell this this, this fear? And what are people doing in, re- in reaction in response to this? We think it's important that um, an individual that has experienced some kind of biased incident um, report it right away. Uh, report it to 911, the police, but also to report it to the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations. Uh, on a broader scale, our agency and uh, and working uh, in unison with the Mayor's Commission on Asian American Affairs, has been pushing the city administration to put out a public message against this type of discrimination. And earlier this week, both the Human Relations Commission and the Mayor's administration put out such messages because this virus has nothing to do with the people living here in Philadelphia. And I want to come back to this point because this is widespread, but Dr. Jen had a video go viral dealing with another race issue specifically related to who could get COVID-19. Dr. Jen, what was this myth and how did you dispel it? You know, the myth running around, and it probably still is, is that black people can't get COVID-19 or coronavirus. Um, I actually happened to hear that myth um, when I was in the beauty shop myself a couple of weeks ago, and I heard a couple of women talking about it. And I thought it was strange, but I, I said, oh, well, there's obviously there's no truth to this, but I'm sure this is just a one-off thing. I went home and just was interested in, in to see, and all over the Internet, there are people saying that black people can't get coronavirus or COVID-19 uh, due to the melanin in our skin or uh, where, where we live or where we're from, whatever the reason. So I've started doing uh, daily coronavirus videos on my Facebook page to dispel myths and, and to talk about coronavirus. But, yeah, this idea that black people cannot get coronavirus clearly is false. It is untrue. Unfortunately, a lot of people have gotten coronavirus up to this point, including black people, unfortunately. Uh, but it is myths like that serve to harm us in many ways. Um, for me, as a, a family physician, the thing that's scariest is that when we put credence and we put time and effort into these myths, it could be taking away from putting our time and effort into real strategies and real solutions based on facts and could end up putting us at greater risk uh, in, the, in the end. So it, it's particularly scary. Yeah. yeah and, and to Dr. Jen's point, uh, Chair, I was in my LA fitness and I went into the sauna and it was pretty crowded. There are a number of older African-American men in there. And this man was ex- saying exactly what Dr. Jen was saying. And he was going mm-hmm. on about that. There's no cases in Africa. Now, this was a few weeks, a week and a half ago. He said, that's the mm-hmm. reason why there are no cases in Africa, because if you have dark skin, if you're black, you're automatically protected. I knew this was just nonsense. And I, I corrected him. Mm-hmm. But he yes. said, I heard this on, I heard this, and he's told me different sites. 
on the mm-hmm. internet and on radio, I guess talk radio. Mm-hmm. And there was mm-hmm. nothing I was going to say to him. I said, there's absolutely, what you're saying is medically just not true. But everyone sure. was shaking their head with this guy who was holding court. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I said, man, mm-hmm. this is absolutely embedded but, in this community. But where does, do these types of, of disbeliefs and myths, where do they come from? And why do they come up right now when we're dealing with crises? I do not have the answer, but I'll tell you what I think, because I literally spend every day debunking uh, debunking myths about coronavirus, the flu shot, and so many other things. Something that I've noticed is that uh, from personal experience being in practice for 12 years or so, you know, when there are medical sort of emergencies, disasters, medical issues that come up that tend to be big issues, you know, during flu season is really when the flu mists really are flying around and, and, and all sorts of other things. That's when I'm often seeing people um, spreading these myths. And I wonder, it's a question of mine, if it's a way for people to try to explain something that's poorly understood or not understood at all. I mean, if you think about coronavirus, again, this is my theory, but coronavirus we don't know much about. And and honestly, even scientists are are breaking their necks trying to figure it out. Clearly, some theories are more plausible than others. I also think people are are frightened. Honestly, I think sometimes myths uh, arise in times of fear. Um, and, and concern. Uh, so, you know, again, just my two cents on this, but I've certainly seen in times when medical uh, yeah. issues tend to take predominance, we see lots of uh, fake news, for lack of better terms. And in times of crisis, you see, well, first off, you need a scapegoat, and that's, of course, it's a the Chinese Asian virus, yeah. so we can target a whole continent. And I think for mm. people, I think Dr. Jen is right, that people are, they call it a numeracy, but people don't know basic medical science or math. And so you get a very, like Occam's razor, this is the simplest explanation. And also, it, it also privileges you. It was, in fact, a black man that was telling me that basically he was not going to get it because of his melanin. So there's almost this kind of, in some ways, deifying himself. But, I mean, mm-hmm. and the other thing I was thinking when he was talking to this, these, these conspiracies, it goes back to Tuskegee. I mean, there's, there are real reasons why yeah. Yeah. African-Americans are very suspicious Absolutely. of the kind Absolutely. of whitewashing and the racism that's been part of medical science. And, and I got to right. bring this back to the Asian-Americans because this xenophobia treatment happens to immigrant populations too and people who are easily identifiable as other or as different just being asian walking around it's hard to hide who you are right and so you're easier targets and and you mentioned john that this goes all the way up to the top um how are the how is the community feeling do they feel uh, supported by uh, you know, nationally, locally, and, and, and how do you, and I've heard of some of my Asian friends actually getting guns and response to this because the fear is so rampant. The fact is there are many Asians that are more fearful of the violence of having a target on their back than they are of the coronavirus. Um, and that's just a fact with some of the Asians that I've spoken to. Yes, I've seen the reports. I've even heard from folks that know other people that have been in line at the gun shops getting guns for fear of being attacked. This fear that's being stoked is, is re- very real on the ground. And it's really unfortunate in this crisis, this health and economic crisis that we're, we're experiencing today. There's this uh, other side of this ugliness of, of the isms where... Um, for some reason, folks are targeting one group um, um, and holding them responsible for the coronavirus. And the community that I've been talking to is very afraid. To his credit, President Bush, when, when 9-11 happened, he tapped down immediately on what was an ugly rise in attacks on American Muslims and the Ameri- American Arab community. And, you know, the idea that we are all Americans. And I think it's that kind of leadership that says this is wrong. This is, this is against everything we stand for. It has literally been the opposite, that this president is 
literally, I mean, in, in some ways, it's, it's horrible, but it's a political strategy. He did it with Mexicans as rapists, and now he's using this community to score really cheap political points. I, I find it yeah. nauseating. Yeah, and, and I want to switch a little bit and just pivot, uh, Dr. Jen, because people are not listening to the directives. <laughs> Americans as a culture, we are individualistic, and we think we can do whatever we want to do. How is that impacting yeah. us being able to clamp down on this virus? Yeah, I mean, this is such a multi-layered issue. And, uh, you know, I wanted to just touch on something, Charles, you appropriately brought up, which is the Tuskegee um, syphilis experiment from, you know, years ago. Um, as an African-American physician, this is something I talk to my patients a lot about. And, and I do think it plays into um, myths, things going around, such as if you're black, you can't get coronavirus, in the sense that um, many of us, I say us meaning black people, we have a, an understandable distrust of the healthcare system that is deep-seated and is multifaceted and includes, you know, cultural reasons and sociological reasons and economic, but also sort of historical when it comes to medical care in this country and receiving it as a black person. And so I also think as we talk about what plays into stere- not only stereotypes, but not so much stereotypes, but rather um, uh, myths and things like that, I-, I think that plays a role. Now, Sherry, back to what you're talking about is so how does this then translate into people not following rules now, all kinds of people setup. yeah and all, all kinds, kinds of, people, of people ignoring right? not not just brown people but all sorts of people right um you know that is something i've found particularly peculiar um and that to me is frightening and i do think there is some individualism that's playing a role i think there's and again this is completely my opinion i'm not a sociologist i'm a family doctor just watching behavior and trying to make a difference but i think there's some of a lot of different things i think some of it's defiance i think some people just don't want to be told what to do i've met i've met a lot of people and talked to a number of my patients and friends who actually have not believed it meaning they've just been disbelieving of the extent of the problem meaning, oh, it can't be that bad, or it's really not that serious, is it? It's just a cold. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how bad could this be? I mean, mean, look, the liquor store is open, right? So there's not only defiance for some people, but disbelieving for other people. And, of course, there are a number of of other uh, range of issues. If you look at, like, who basically responded when and how, if you are someone that is watching right-wing news, if you're watching Fox, really up until, remember, like just a week ago, it was a, remember, this was a hoax. This was a Democratic hoax. This was nothing more than just a cold. So you have a population that doesn't trust the government. And Dr. Jen's exactly right. There's this deep strain of individual. Liberal democracy means individualism. I can pick from one of 40 kinds of soda. People want that choice. And they think that I'm seeing people going to, to, the, to the Target. I'm seeing people at, at Walmart. And the president is telling me this is nothing to worry about. So you have a sizable part of the population that basically don't have good information. John, is language access an issue too? Until recently, just a few days ago, the city of Philadelphia wasn't even putting the updates in Spanish. They just started doing that. Language access is a huge problem for um, immigrants that are living here in Philadelphia. They are getting the news and the instructions from the city and the state later than everybody else is getting in the English language. So there is a problem in there and, and, and folks that don't speak English and getting the latest information about the coronavirus and business getting the right information about closures and opening. As far as behavior is concerned, I think prior to two weeks ago when the city and state started taking action, the uh, virus has had an impact on Chinatown way before that. Even Mm. in in January, we already saw business slow down in Chinatown because people were associating the virus with Chinatown. And that's why the mayor um, specifically came out with his folks, his staff members, to have lunch in Chinatown in early February to dispel the myth that it's connected in any way to a particular group. And how important are organizations like yours with getting the word out and also working to make sure that these types of 
of beliefs and myths and, and, and miseducation, so to speak, don't continue to spread? really important. I mean, the city, I think, is, uh, this is a uh, an event that most of us have never experienced in the city. The city is overwhelmed with the amount of information that mm. they have to collect and get out. So it is our job as organizations on the ground to do what we can to um, make it language accessible and get this information out. And that's what we've been doing. We have staff that have been calling folks up every day. I think we've tallied 400 calls in the past seven days already, making sure that people um, get the information and we're checking in on their well-being. Charles, quickly, China and South Korea, two countries that were able to get folks in line and affect the lockdown. Given our individualistic culture here, what will it take to get us in line? Because that's, (laughs) I mean, it's literally like herding cats. New Yorkers just doing whatever they want to do. Floridians doing whatever they want to do to the point where the governor had to say, look, I will lock y'all up for 60 days and give you a $500 fine if you don't sit your behinds down. This is this is America. And they had to cut off the water and the electricity in L.A. In LA County and California because businesses kept operating. We are not a totalitarian state. And the kinds of things they did in, in Korea and in, in China, they would never pass civil rights law here. Not that I don't think I think it was effective, but that type of, of absolute hammer crackdown on the population, it's just not going to play out in a liberal democracy. And also for something that we all said earlier, because of this rugged individualism that is so part of our kind of political and cultural DNA. And Dr. Jen, I mean, because you, you got to balance capitalism, right? People wanting to work with uh, public health trying to save lives. You're right. Uh, you know, what they did overseas would not work here in terms of sort of shutting down the whole society. But there's a part of me as a physician that wished we could do something like yeah. that here simply for the safe and well, safety and well-being of the people. I, it, was, it is remarkable, Cherry. You talk about people being on the beaches, being on beaches up until a couple of days ago. <laughs> when they were, and the only reason they were because they were kicked off. Yeah. And, and the only reason they weren't parking you know, there is because the, the, the parking lots were, were shut down. Um, but that's also that's also sort of, you know, our individualistic uh, sort of sense uh, the, the desire to make decisions for ourselves, you know, that, that's a wonderful privilege and right that we've been given by yeah, living right. in this country. By the way, it doesn't exist the same for all people, as we know. That's However, right. it's a wonderful right uh, in this country. But the downside is what I feel and what we are all feeling when people don't look out for other people. If all you do is look out for yourself, you could inadvertently be hurting other people. And that's where, you know, we're sort of seeing our fabric. We have to, we're having to tap people on the shoulder or, or, or tap them from six feet away and say, hey, buddy, no, I'm going to need you to, to go back in your house because by coming yeah. out, you are potentially affecting me negatively. And, and that, I don't think we've been faced with the way we are now, certainly in this way. Yeah, and it's almost like we have to do some type of public shaming to get the folks who refuse to listen mm-hmm. to listen. And so i got to talk about capitalism a bit. I mean, in many ways, this is about money. The president wants the country back to work by Easter, noting, and I'll quote, people die and the cure shouldn't be worse than the disease. Others have said, save lives at all costs because of xenophobia, because of these hate attacks. I want you to jump back in, John. Is a community like the Asian community going to suffer more than the rest of us? Yeah, I think we don't know what the cure is. Yeah. And the economy is just in shatters. Uh, We're talking about immigrants, and and Dr. Gallagher said this, immigrants are service workers. They're the manual labor. And if there are no jobs or no companies open, um, they're they're not earning any money. But that's not to say that we should open by Easter. I think in, in the context of the disaster we are in right now, I just want to share with you that there are folks in the Chinatown community that have come together 
they've heard the call for um, people to donate PP&E, protective, per, personal protective equipment, and they've raised over $10,000. They're going to mm. use that money to buy face masks and donate it to the local hospital in this community, Jefferson Thomas, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson Hospital, Temple Hospital. So although folks are, are realize that the, the struggle is um, dire, they're still thinking about how they can help um, the city. One of the last questions I'll hit you all with before we close out is this idea of classism, because a lot of people have felt and I've heard this discussion online that celebrities have access to testing for COVID-19, even with no symptoms, when everybody else was told they could not get the test unless they were sick. Dr. Jen, how is this happening? Are people correct in feeling like the haves can get tested and the have nots have to wait? Yeah, I, I think they are correct in, in thinking that. That was my first thought. Of course, I don't know exactly how the celebrities got the test. I don't know the situation or the circumstances. But my first thought when I saw that on TV was, wow, how did they get the tests in the first place? Uh, when we certainly have a nationwide shortage and there are people who need tests who can't get them and people who are even in the hospitals that aren't even being able to get tested you know, in a timely manner and they're in the hospital sick. Um, and, and, of course, we also know that uh, one of the recommendations regarding testing at this point, for the, for the most part, is if you are asymptomatic, we are not testing you. Part of the reason for that is because we have a shortage of tests, and so right. we are, the way our guidelines are reflecting what's happening in the world right now. So, so yeah, how did they get the test? I don't know, but I have to say the first thought that ran to my mind was, oh, they're a celebrity. That's how. And they Whether got the hookup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they got somebody. the hookup. Well, Cultural psychologists are opining that this crisis – will force Americans to be less individualistic and have a heightened fear of outsiders. Do you agree? And would these changes be good or bad? And just a quick response to this before we have our final question. And we'll start with you, Charles. I think that this could bring people together in in many important ways. I think that the nuclear family has basically um, made kind of the social contract small as opposed to what used to be an extended family even 100 years ago and an extended community. I think some of that might come back. But I think that this president is sending a signal that he wants to wall off the United States of America. And in a global economy, that can't happen. And there's simply no leadership coming from the White House to basically think about how do we... I mean, I think as a nation of immigrants, it's been our strength. And we are turning our backs on on what has been really our history. Yeah. And John, any thoughts? Do you think this will change us for the better or the worse? I think there's a lot worse that's happening now. I think we are all Americans, but with this separation and targeting... I think it's going to leave scars for um, years to come. You know, we look back on 9-11, you talk about President Bush uh, making a statement. We don't have that same leadership making the same statements here. So the scars are going to be deep. Well, because this is Flashpoint, I do need to wrap this up. Americans are coming together. I mean, we see people stepping up to help those in need, healthcare workers on the front lines. How do we get more folks on board so we can get this virus under control quickly and so that we can get back to work? We need to heed the calls that have been made. We've been asked to stay inside, to social distance, to use hygiene precautions and things like that. We need to heed those recommendations. We need to remember that no one is above this virus or below it. We all matter. We are all equal. And not only do we need to look after ourselves and our own families, but we need to do that for other people as well. And the way we do that, at least in this particular situation, is that we heed the warnings that we're being given. I always like to say to my patients whenever I do interviews that, you know, I I, I like to be optimistic in the end in terms of we will get through this. How we get through it, how long it will take and how tough it is, you know, that's for us to determine. And it can be a lot better if we sort of 
we really work together. Charles? Dr. Jen is spot on. I completely agree with her analysis. And I would just add to that, I think we're already turning a corner in some ways with young people. I have two college daughters. They went from being thoughtful about this, but fully getting it. And there was a young man who was on the beach saying, I get Corona, I get Corona. He has since recanted that because he understands his actions could basically influence the life or death of his grandmother or a neighbor. And I think it's that empathy, that deep empathy of walking in someone else's shoes. God forbid, what would happen if I infected someone I love? And I think that that's what we have to do. We have to communicate to everyone that this isn't something you're doing alone. This is back to individualism. It is it is a social contract and it is about community. Final word, John. The isms are very simple and stark here in Philadelphia. And you just look at the um, ways that people go and get their foods. Low-income families uh, send their students to the school district to pick up their lunches. They have to go get their brown bags. Folks with money, they just order and it gets delivered. That's the stark difference here. But if Philadelphians come together and view ourselves as one united group, I think we can get through this and just be considerate of that people are living in different conditions and have have different perspectives, but we are all one city and one people. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you so much to John Chen, to Dr. Jen Cottle, and to Dr. Charles Gallagher for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. Next up, she got married in the middle of a global pandemic. It's really resonated with me, and I said, no, now is the time. How a Philadelphia woman refused to let COVID-19 restrictions dampen their big day. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint fam. If you like what you hear, please stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes. Some of our most popular episodes include the exclusive featuring David L. Cohen from Comcast. He's talking about the $20 billion lawsuit against the company brought by entertainment mogul Byron Allen. In addition, we got a lot of downloads on our hair and identity show. It was inspired by the one and only Ayanna Presley, who came out as bald. And if you're wondering what is human trafficking, take a listen to this Flashpoint Extra exclusive where Philadelphia mom tells the story of her daughter getting trafficked at 15 years old. She's sharing it, hoping to save others. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. Tell us what you think. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week is a bride who refused to let a global pandemic stop their love. Shalina Broster and Odell Johnson dated for a half dozen years before they decided to solidify their union. Then days before their March 19th nuptials, statewide lockdowns and restrictions threatened their big day, but they pushed through it all, focusing instead on what matters most. With me is Shalina Broster Johnson. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. Congratulations on your recent wedding. Thank you so much. A lot of people have been canceling weddings, postponing weddings because of this coronavirus crisis, but you pushed ahead along with your new husband. Explain why. Well, we never really planned to have a really big wedding in the beginning. We always wanted to have a small private legal ceremony. And in a couple of months, we were going to have like a large public ceremony because we have a lot of family and a lot of friends that we wanted to share in this day. So because we wanted to keep the legal ceremony small, we felt as though, you know, we would just push through and just, you know, honor our vows and, you know, just commit to, you know, our love 
just have the ceremony anyway. 2020 has been a a wild year because you guys didn't even decide to get married until very recently. Yes, it was actually January 26th. It was the day that Kobe Bryant died. And, you know, I'm from Philly. Kobe Bryant, you know, he's from this area. I was very deeply impacted. And my then boyfriend, he was as well. And I remember the day we found out, I said, babe, listen, we've been together for six years. And I would hate for something to happen to you and for me to be in your obituary as your special friend. And the same thing for me, like, what are we doing? Let's just get married. Because up until then, we just were like, well, you know, we got to, you know, we have to get the house. We have to have this in order. We have to have that. It was all of the things that society tells people you need to have first before you get married. And he was like, you know, I thought you would want the really big wedding. And I'm, I was just like, you know what, like that Kobe Bryant's death, it just really resonated with me. And I said, no, now is the time. So let's just get married. And he said, okay, let's do it. So he said, you know, just pick a date. And I chose March the 19th, 2020, because it's the first, it was the first day of spring. And I had been through so much in my own life that to me, it was a, it was a signal of renewal, rebirth, a new chapter. And so I said, I don't care what goes down. It's March 19th. And that's the date. It's a Thursday. And he said, okay, fine. And so I just stuck with that date. And so then, of course, earlier this month, we hear of this, the spread of a virus that is literally taking people out across the globe. And then Mm -hmm. we go into serious lockdown here in Philadelphia. What went through your mind? You know, I actually did um, take it seriously and I took precaution. And so we actually found some pastors who would marry us on the 19th because that was my whole thing. It needed to happen on the 19th. So they opened up their church. You know, they let us have the ceremony. But at the time, the city said no more than 10 people at a public gathering. So we really took that seriously. And we only had seven people at our ceremony. And actually, there should have been more. My husband's father and his uh, his wife, they couldn't come because they're in North Carolina. And I believe at the time, North Carolina had a stay in order in place. So they couldn't come. My parents are from Philadelphia, but they couldn't come because my mother cares for um, a very sickly family member and she's elderly. And I said, Mom, I don't want you to be compromised. And then, you know, unwittingly, you pick up something and you take it back to, you know, our relatives. So my mother didn't even come, you know, she couldn't come to my own wedding, but that's how seriously we took, you know, the coronavirus and the warning. And given the death of Kobe Bryant and then this Mm -hmm. widespread pandemic, did that even make you want to cling to Odell and say, you know what, this is this is the perfect time? It's what you make of it. So I said, you know, like, let's just do it. And I mean, remember how quickly he decided we were going to do it. We didn't have rings. He didn't propose to me. He didn't have a ring to do it. So I went into the ceremony. Let's just do the vows. And I knew in a couple months we'll do something public. Well, he actually surprised me with a ring the ceremony. It was just so sweet. And when he put that wrong finger, I was just like, wow, this is the man that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And like, this is the one for me, for sure. We really just did what we had to do. And um, some people, they laughed at us because afterwards, you know, we were hungry. But at the, at the time in the city, you could go to a restaurant, but you couldn't sit and you couldn't dine in. So we went to one of our favorite spots called Philly Style at Broad Diamond. And we, um, we ordered chicken cheesesteak, buffalo wings, chicken Alfredo salad and I had a chocolate milkshake and we went back home and ate it (laughs) and it was glorious it was so much fun we were just in the moment a lot of people are very gloom and doom right now but this is like a bright spot 
in all of this madness. Mm-hmm. When we were making our plans and we were doing things, we didn't look at it as though, wow, we're getting married in the middle of a pandemic. We looked at it as we're handling business. This is what we want to do. And a lot of people, you know, they objected to what we were doing, but we did it our way. And just to think that because I was so non-traditional, like I wore a burnt orange jumpsuit to my wedding. I did not wear white. One of the stores were starting to close. So I was just so happy in the moment. But it's really overwhelming that people are like, wow, this is a really good story. And they're like, we're learning to just go after what you want, to just do it. And what I love about this whole experience is that the coronavirus taught me to keep the main thing, the main thing. If I was caught up on the big ceremony and everything, I would have really missed out. But it really stripped us down to what really, truly will always be. And that's our love for each other. So I'm just I can't even believe it that people um, are just inspired by our story. That's the silver lining of all of this. It's forcing people to go back to what matters the most. And your story, I think, underscores just getting down to the basic. We've gotten distracted, I think, by a lot of frills mm-hmm. and things that don't really matter. I totally agree with that. It just made it even more special, you know, because you're right. It, I find that more people are caring about each other. More people are really checking in on people. People are finding different ways to talk. They're using like Zoom and Skype. I really feel like it's making us human again. I just got to ask you, how did you two meet? We met through a mutual friend and I actually asked him out on Valentine's Day, well, for Valentine's Day back in 2014, but it didn't go down that way because I actually moved into my new apartment and he's like, I have been um, homeless for two years before then. So we have quite a story and I had just finally got back on my feet and everything in my life. And so we had to kind of put off our initial date, but we ended up dating and we've been together ever since for six years. And so what day did he propose? He never proposed. That's the thing. We just said, okay, we're going to get married because we didn't have rings or anything. He, he never had a ring. It was just like, okay, we're going to get married. Which day do you want to do it? March the 19th. Are we going to have rings? I don't think so. So I was, I, I went to that church and I was going to go to that ceremony without getting a ring because that didn't matter. What mattered were the vows and being the man he is, he surprised me with a ring. So I said, you know, technically you did not propose to me. We just said we wanted to do it. We wanted to get married and we set a date and then that was it. Wow. We didn't. <laughs> it's really not traditional. What would you say are the best traits that Odell has that'll make this last he's, through the ages? He's very kind. He's very thoughtful. He's courteous. He's a good supporter. He supports my dreams and my visions. He's just a, like his mother raised him well. He's just a nice gentleman. He's a nice guy. So I got a nice guy. Yeah. And so what's the vision for yourself? Because there's going to be a lot of Corona babies born 10 months from now. Do you think y'all going to have one or what? You know what? I'm open to it. I really am open to it. I would love to. um, I already have a son from a previous relationship that we both adore. And I would love to um, have with Odell. So I am very much open to that. And um, I'm excited and looking forward to it. Well, you know what, Shalina? We'll have to follow back up. If you all have a Corona baby on top of getting married during the coronavirus, (laughs) That'll be one for the ages for sure. Congratulations to you. And thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. You're welcome. Next up, they're hosting pop-up pantries for those in need during the COVID-19 crisis. 546 families. Wow. The coalition of groups on the front lines battling the city's food insecurity. But first, traffic and weather in a couple minutes. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and three Philadelphia organizations have come together to offer relief for families who are struggling in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. They're providing them hot meals, pop-up pantries, toiletries, and more. Here to tell us more about the Take It to the Streets program is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, founder and organizer of the Elite 30, Charlotte Greer-Brown, and founder of Your AOK Foundation, Yanni Williams. Ladies, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So this is uh, definitely, we're, we're deep into week two of these restrictions. And on Wednesdays, you all provide services. Uh, tell me what, what you do on Wednesdays. So on Wednesdays, what we do is we ask people to come out and volunteer, to come and prep the pantry food boxes. And we usually do uh, over 100, 150, depending on what the demand is. Uh, and we prep those boxes, and then we go out into the community, the 3300 block of D Street, and we distribute the food to hundreds of families. So we actually, this week was our biggest week, so it was 546 families. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. That's a Thank lot of you. people. I mean, why Why do you think so, so many people have flocked to this? It shows how much need there is amid these restrictions, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Um, thank you to Karen for Friends. They're out 1227 Townsend Road in Philadelphia. And they're a hub. Uh, they have a commercial kitchen and they have a full abundance warehouse. And they partner with us to make sure that the community uh, gets food. With Karen with Friends, since we partnered, Charlotte and I partnered with them, they became my hub. So people won't think we just making sandwiches out of our homes. No, we're actually doing a commercial kitchen. Um, that's licensed, um, we food safety serve, and we just, um, we really appreciate and love caring for friends. So we're there Mondays, uh, 9 to 1, and then Wednesdays, we're there 9 to 2, and then we go straight to the uh, uh, 3300D Street. And, and let me and, jump in here, because I understand that this was organized as soon as the COVID-19 crisis yes. hit. Um, and, yes. and this take it to the streets program, what you anticipated this type of need, right? The, yes, the group. yes. So we've been actually doing it. But I, um, when this all came about, you know, God was like, oh, no, you know, you got to keep doing it. And Charlotte was like, come on, Yanni, let's do it together because, you know, I needed help to do it. It's going to be bigger than what I could do on my own. And it's just been overwhelming. So we just, you know, just to see the families. Uh, happy. I mean, I had a grandmother crying, you know, uh, the la- the first week we did it, she was crying with her, her grandkids because they didn't have any food. You know, she didn't know what was going to happen. And so- Charlotte, jump in here because I want to hear why did yes. you put this to, why did put together this Take It to the Streets program uh, specifically for COVID-19 and what are you all doing to keep everybody safe? I have a sign that, you know, that's getting real trendy that say, help us help others. And that's what it's all about. And some of them yeah. were kind of concerned about the safety measures that we're taking. And it's, as Yanni said, we're in a commercial facility. So, therefore, when we first come in, we're, our temperatures are checked. There's gloves available. There's masks available. There's disinfectant. Whatever we need to make sure we have that space, there's social distance inside the warehouse. 
because it's big yes. enough for three to six feet apart. So your your volunteers literally are on the front lines of this, you know, risking their lives to help other people. Yes, absolutely. Big shout out yes. to them. Yes. She had the young people, Urban 215, shout out to them, youth yes. program, mm-hmm. and young people to come out and oh, do it as well. So first started out, they were going door to door, helping her hand out this food. And so is that is that how you keep the social distancing is that you bring it, you go door to door versus having large gatherings of people uh, together? Yes, I think that was more effective uh, for us because I started that actually Martin Luther King Day when uh, uh, people were coming out on that day because of the weather. So I didn't, you know, we had so many, so many things. And one thing about me, once it's out of my car, it don't go back in. So I said, hey, um, let's put it in the van. Let's go up and down these streets. Let's door knock. Let's let's let these people have this food, all these toiletries. And that's exactly um, what we did. And so when this came about, you know, um, God was like, okay, use that same method. So that does help out with the social distancing and um, keeping everybody safe. Yeah. So Yeah, and I just want to say this ending up week two of this COVID-19 crisis and, you know, some people say it could end in a, just a few weeks, but it could take a while. Are you all prepared to continue? And then what can people do to support you? It's all up to the state of Pennsylvania, to our city, you know. They, uh, whatever restrictions or they continue to do the stay-home orders or, you know, whatever that they're doing, we, we're going to follow that accordingly. But we, I know for a fact that Yanni and I are, are ready to be on the front line because it makes no sense for people to be in their homes without food, especially the fact that we don't know when monies will be allotted to families so they can continue. If you can, if you can uh, donate monetarily, please go to our website, uh, org to our donation uh, page. You can cash app Yanni Lovebug with the dollar sign, do PayPal, which is donate at your org, And also you can bring items to uh, on Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, 3300 D Street. So if you have some toiletries, you pick up some extra laundry detergent, please bring it to that location and we'll give it right to the families. Or you can give it right to them because they're right there. I want to say thank you to both of you for doing this work. Stay safe, stay healthy. For anybody who wants to support through donations or through money, go to youraok.org uh, and they're accepting donations. So to Charlotte Greer-Brown and to Yanni Williams, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. I appreciate you both. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. 
Splash Point with Cherry Gregg is executive produced by me, Cherry Gregg, with associate producer, Ali Amato. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and walk you through the flames. As Naval Revikant, a.k.a. the angel philosopher, once said, the virus makes us value our health. It delivers us to our homes and gives us free time. Let's become the healthiest we've ever been. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.